love the poems, love the stories, love the words on East Leeds Community Radio. You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds Community Radio at Chapel FM Arts Centre and we are in Studio One. Agnes is on the desk, but I have with me the poet, Hannah Stone. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Peter. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's really nice that you're here. Thank you for making uh, making the trip. And <laughs> you're no stranger to Chapel FM, after all. No, no, I've done various things over, over the years, and I always maintain I've got a very good face for radio. Yeah. So. <laughs> but also, yeah, you did something, a lovely workshop during writing on air. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Claire, that was great. With Claire Wixell, yes. Yeah, that was great. And uh, But you've got a new collection of poetry out called The Invisible Worm, and it launched this Sunday on Zoom. It had a launch on uh, Zoom on Sunday, and it had an in-person launch in December, and I've got... Various other events coming up, including a contribution to Leeds Lit Fest in June, which would be nice, and various other trips. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a moving collection. I was very moved by it last, last night and I, uh, when I read it through for the second time. And it's, it's uh, called The Invisible Worm. And you're going to tell us what it's about. But before we start, we're going to hear a piece of music, um, which you've chosen. You've chosen three pieces of music. And I know music is really important to you, so we'll talk a bit about that. But first of all, let's hear this piece by Benjamin Britten. So that was just a very short section of Benjamin Britten's um, Sea Interludes from, from Peter Grimes. Yes, that was the first one called Dawn, and I chose it because I think it's such evocative word painting, really. Well, not word painting, it's painting the scenery, isn't it? The seabirds and the sea, and it's set in Aldborough, and it's um, a most amazing opera. I love opera, um, partly because it's very grand, partly because it's vocal, but this is, has some... Peter Grimes has got some very, very intimate moments in it and a lot of very thought-provoking ideas. Yeah, um, so, absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great opera and a fantastic, yeah, fantastic production recently at, at Opera North. And I'm not a huge opera person, but actually Benjamin Britten, yeah, just just 
just the, the kind of dramatic payoff, really. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah. As well as the, the sort of coloration yeah. in the orchid, in the music. Yes, and as a singer, I think he writes fantastically for the voice, which yeah. is not true of all composers. <laughs> Very true. But we're not here to talk about Benjamin Britten, but although we we are here partly to talk about music because, as I say, your music is very important to you and integral, really, to what you you do. But first of all, tell us about the, the, the collection, The Invisible Worm. Yeah, well, the title is from um, a little poem that we well known to people from um, William Blake, The Invisible Worm That Flies in the Dark. Um, and it's like all Blake's poems, it's a bit mysterious, but it's clearly about something that has gone wrong. There's a, you know, something in the middle of the rose. And the book commemorates um, my friend Rosemary Mitchell, who died a couple of years ago after a very short and very brutal illness. And um, it talks about friendship. It talks about loss. Um, it teases out quite a number of things. You were saying when we were chatting earlier that friendships are not always just you know the smiles and the happy times you know sometimes our friends annoy us a bit mm. um, sometimes we feel some distance from our friends because they have different ideas to us so I think there's room for all of that um, the second part of it is called a testament to friendship and commemorates the very happy times we had going on holiday together but the poems I've chosen to read are from the first part which uh, are really dark, aren't they? I mean, they are about end of life. They are about how we say goodbye to our friends. They are about the fact that we only grieve when we care about somebody and they're no longer there. Yeah, absolutely. They don't. They don't take any prisoners. <laughs> no, um, and quite rightly so. It's it 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 turns it's a terrible loss, obviously, to you and and uh, cancer is a eviscerating thing emotionally and physically and it's the i think the poems capture that very very powerfully um can we hear one then yes um i'm going to start with one uh, which represents a number of things about rosemary one of which was that she had at the time she died just been ordained as a deacon within the church of england and her faith was very important to her and there are therefore quite a lot of religious illusions and this poem starts with an epigram from one corinthians Short-changed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. You blamed the change for the bulges which gestated inside you. Insatiable twins dancing on your bladder, purloining your breath, extorting bigger clothes while begrudging room for even one slice of cake. You are advised to take no valuables onto the ward, so hand me your purse for safekeeping. I spend the small change of your final trimester on fruit and nuts, books and tempting beverages, to distract you from the usury of ward round updates. With each stolen night of rest, you shrink inside the hospital gown, which strains to contain the tumours which have embezzled your life. Yeah, thank you. That was Hannah Stone reading the first poem. <clears throat> She's going to read from the Invisible Worm, the latest poetry collection. I mean, the, 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 the worm that eats the rose, I mean, Rose, your friend is called Rose, so yes, presumably yes. that's a, 
Um, yes, and yeah. the cancer is like the, the <clears throat> evil thing that's in the worm, the, the, the worm mm. that's in the rose, the evil thing that's inside this you know, beautiful flower that's mm. destroying it. Mm. Um, she had a uterine cancer, so a lot of the imagery is about um, gestation and pregnancy, and mm. she was a single woman. She'd never had children, and it was almost like that. And she used to talk about this as... as uh, yeah, you know, as her her bulge and and you know her, mm. you know this sort of this sense of cradling this cancer, because it becomes so much part of you. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, the rose is sort of. You also talk. There are a couple of references to her sort of blooming complexion. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. She was very rosy cheeked, mm. um, and she never wore makeup, so she didn't sort of tone down her complexion. So <laughs> yes, she had lovely roses in her cheek until she didn't, because she yeah. became very white cheeked and. And one, and there's a whole poem about that. Absolutely. So, I mean, the 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 book is reads as a narrative in a way. Um, Well, certainly the first part of the book, Mm. um, the first the first section of it, where you're talking about Rose, particularly Rosemary, and how she got ill and the death. So, I mean, did did you? What was the process of, of writing? I started writing some of these poems while she was ill. Um, I had the the privilege, really, of caring for her in her final months, even to the extent of um, helping arrange and deliver end-of-life care. And she died in her own home um, with friends with her. Um, and I didn't share any of them with her. I, she was It was so intense for her because, you know, we only get one go at dying, don't we? And she was busy dying. <laughs> and I thought, no, this is not the time. Although we had previously shared lots of poems together and we'd actually had a collaboration a few years earlier. Um, and then after she died, not long after that, my mother died. And then I was ill for about 18 months, really, with the shock and trauma and long COVID. And during that time, I wrote these poems. And I don't think there was... Um, a plan really there isn't generally a plan when I write my poetry but I just found I kept writing about it and then I realized that I wanted to pull them together I wanted to commemorate her the year after she died I published a book of her own poetry she'd asked me to be her literary executor (laughs) as well as being her executor for all other legal things Um, and it was the first book I've published in 10 years that wasn't one of my own And I think on the back of that, I thought, well, I've got a lot to say here, actually. And I felt that grief and loss and how we accommodate it is something that's universal as well as personal. And but it's probably the book I've been most diffident about because it is quite hard to market a book that's about end of life care. (laughs) Well, poetry is quite hard to market anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I was. Yeah, given your relationship with her, which is obviously about other things apart from poetry, but but includes poetry, she would obviously have improved, approved of this, it's, it's, it's of, of this endeavour, would mm. she, do you think? Oh, I think she would. And I think she would have been very touched that I'd wanted to do this. Um, we, we had a... We, we'd been colleagues, we had a great friendship, we went on holiday together. When her mother died, she said, oh, I've got no one left to love. And I said, well... I'll be your sister. My sister died when I was 20. And so we had that sort of sisterly connection. I think that's a good way of describing it, really. Mm. Uh, It wasn't at all, you know, a romantic relationship. It wasn't that type of relationship. But the intensity was that we'd shared, you know, the death of her parents. We'd shared various traumas at work. um, And... Funnily enough, I know she would have shared this with me if she could have done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And at the end, all I could do was to share 
her end of life mm. and to make it as good an experience for her as I could to honour her commitment to the religious traditions which nourished her. Um, and that a lot of that comes out in the poetry and mm. my relative unease with that, that I felt this was a gap between us because I mm. didn't share her unequivocal faith. Um, mm. And some of the poems are about those sort of tensions that, that were there. Yes, and I mean, absolutely. But I think you've done... Yeah, not to have included those was would not have been honouring her and your mm, friendship, the, yeah. the tensions and the friction. But yeah. um, yes, and you've written, you've written a testament to her. We'll talk about the idea of the threnody later on. I'm, I'm a friend of mine, Stephen, who sadly died. He was only fifty four, but before he died, he knew he was going to die. He said to me, "I hope you get some good poems." Out oh, of this. <laughs> so uh, have you? I have some. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, but they take a while to. Sort they of do. surface, don't they? they do. If you feel comfortable yeah. with working with them, yeah. Absolutely. In my experience. Let's yeah. hear another one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of the poems also have quite a lot of um, other allusions, cultural allusions, um, literary allusions. This one has an epigram from King Lear, uh, but also talks about um, the Taylor of Gloucester <laughs> um, and about um, Beth from Little Women, inventing new gods. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. There does not need to be pain, they promise, tapping the syringe driver, indicating the gold line telephone number. So can we call on Midas in those liminal hours? He could insinuate himself into the room whose sofa made way for hospital bed, the room where we take turns to watch with you, our undrugged sleep peopled with plotless dreams. Beneath the window, a bodkin is stalled in an unfinished tapestry. Half a rose, a green stem, the spine of a leaf. Dozing, you remember Beth laying aside the needle which had become too heavy, the mice in Gloucester shouting, No more twist! You jerk awake and realise it was not Thanatos, but Atropos hammering at the door, and there on the threshold, blocking the first glimmer of dawn, stands the palliative care nurse, holding aloft the frayed ends of your amputated life. Beef. Yes, absolutely. Oh, it is a bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, what you you do something... You do something important, though, which is to give us a picture of your friend. I mean, you know, in the flesh and blood. Mm. Um, I get a very strong sense of her. But also you do, it is it is broader than that in the sense that, you know, I it, it had resonances for me, somebody who has lost mm. people. So, I mean, you've you've managed to do the person. I mean, I, I'm wondering whether, you know, it's only, you can only sort of hit the universal if if you do go personal really if you started out with the universal it might become a, it would be a bit vague and declamatory but you've yeah. really gone for the personal detail which somehow works and yeah and i think also when i'm writing poetry often the poetry i feel happiest with that i've written has got some if you'll pardon the pun for this poem, connective thread. So there might be some repeated image. Here I've got brought in various Greek gods, and I'm not going to explain who they all are, um, and the idea of thread, the unfinished tapestry. Mm. The th so Atropos was the, 
the God who cut the thread of life. One yeah. of the, and you know that was it. Felt to me that was what was happening. I do want to just honour the palliative care nurse and this you know this gold line telephone number, which is not anything to do with Midas, but to do with the astonishingly amazing community care that you get if you have palliative care at home. Mm. And I think the last the day before she died, which was she a Sunday. I phoned that line three times and each time someone came out and reassured me and checked her drugs and, you know, mm. checked her. And they were just absolutely unstinting. Um, so, And this was during the pandemic when it was all so much harder. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, but so the personal, I think, for me was me because this is the way I write, mediated through <laughs> for these perhaps apparently rather... Um, obscure illusions but they were things that worked for me and I know Rosemary would have understood them and you know we do talk about the gods don't we and you know maybe some of you have gone to King Lear so some of these things will fit and you might I think my way of making the personal universal is to say here's this is my stuff here's some other stuff which is you know in a much broader framework can we put them together can they touch each other in some way that that sort of brings out something that connects the two things. Yes, but also you're on to, uh, I mean, we, we, we all lose people. We yeah. all lose people, especially as you get older. But actually, and it's interesting when you're talking about the illusions, the sort of classical illusion. I was just doing a workshop with uh, 13-year-olds from the Leeds East Academy across the road, and actually one of the girls, Brodie, is, is completely obsessed with Greek mythology. <laughs> yes. And she... Uh, you know, we were just talking about the fates and the cutting yeah. the thread just yes. this afternoon. How oh, yeah, the fates, she said. How interesting. Yes. And there it is so in one of my a, poems. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Oh, you have to show her the poem. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, let's have one more poem and then we'll have a piece of music again. Yes, this um, this is, a, is a, I think, a brighter poem. The, po the poetry goes through... I guess the rough chronology of diagnosis, illness, death, a funeral, and then afterwards. Um, and this, well, it would be obvious where this one is from. Somewhere. Rainbows do heavy lifting. They yoke together the full spectrum of dark shades and bright tones, span temporary bridges between scattered communities, bind jaded adults to the confidence of infant innocence. Travelling home from your funeral, friends note a rainbow, cheering the Leeds skyline. They share it on Facebook, remembering how you could always find, amidst the shit, a crock of gold. Yes, that's great. And I, and I, really, I like that. And we also, we the, the, the word shit is, is comes as a shock, but then... We often talk also about a crock of shit, don't we? We do. <laughs> so, a crock and of gold there's not a, a bigger crock of shit than someone dying. <laughs> totally and absolutely, yes. Yeah. Let's hear uh, the second piece of music then, which is the Peter Gabriel. Tell us um, a little bit about that and why you chose it first. Oh, well, I've been a Peter Gabriel fan uh, all my life and um, this is from his latest album, I.O., which is fascinating because it has the same set of songs done to a dark side and a light side, in other words, sort of set to slightly different background music. And I was saying to saying to you, Peter, earlier, wasn't I, that I feel he's, I mean, he's an elderly man now, but th this album, to me, seems to have his artistic and emotional maturity. And there's a lot of love in these um songs and also a sense of the fragility of life coming close to the end of life it's a really really resonant album and i thoroughly recommend it this is love can heal
So that was Peter Gabriel with Love Can Heal off his recent album, I.O. So, um, and that was chosen by Hannah Stone, the poet who's with me here in Studio One, talking about The Invisible Worm, her latest collection of, of poetry. So, Hannah, yeah, I mean, you you say that, obviously, Rosemary's faith was very important to her. I mean, you, you're a theologian as well. <laughs> Tell us a bit about yeah. that part of your life. Um. Well, many years ago, I did a a PhD in theology and worked as an academic theologian. Um, But somewhere along the way, I kind of stopped believing in it. (laughs) Mm. And I'm in the curious position. I'm actually poet theologian for Leeds Church Institute, and they're very um, tolerant about this uh, and occasionally commission me to um, write stuff. I've got a whole book, actually, of blogs I wrote for them during lockdown called Reflections. I must give you a copy for Mm. the uh, library here. Um, But... I think I feel you can have an interest in spirituality and be nourished by the traditions of it without actually believing in a personal salvation. And I would describe myself as a post-Christian or a cultural Christian um, in that, you know, so much of the music, the art, the literature that I love, that I cherish, that is meaningful to me, that uplifts me, has got things from the judeo-christian tradition but i don't have a personal relationship with jesus he might have one with me i don't know but (laughs) i don't with him Um, but rosemary had has always had had always had a faith and had just been ordained and was going to be working in the church of england she had i went to her ordination in uh, ripon cathedral and she had one day in the parish before she um, had to self-isolate before she went into hospital so her ministry was short um Mm. but um yeah i felt it would wouldn't be authentic to write this without uh teasing that out really and quite a lot of the poems um talk about that yeah well it's 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 a good it's a good dissonance to have isn't there in in isn't it in the collection is the fact that she you're making these rituals available mm. to her and that <clears throat> environment that's yeah. important to her, available to her when she dies. Absolutely, but you don't, yeah. but you can't. Yeah, in her final days, I, I arranged twice for her to be anointed, which is one of the sacraments mm. of the church. Um, and 
gosh, we had so many commemorations. We had a funeral, we had services here and there at the college where she trained and at the college at the church where she'd been worshipping before she was ordained etc etc um and the um the final poem i'm going to read not the next one but the final one is actually about the day that we scattered some of her ashes because we we scattered her ashes all over the place we had about i think we had 12 different commemorations for her uh, wow. Which was a lot. I was beginning to get a bit tired of them. <laughs> not, not, the she end. wasn't scattered in twelve different places. Was no, she? no, no. But it was just in terms of you know a sort of a memorial even song here and a memorial mm. even song there and the funeral and then we had a ceremony at Leeds Trinity University where we'd both been colleagues a year yeah. after she died, where um, the book that I'd published of her work was uh, was was shared with people. So we just kept having you know, recollections of her. And then but she had so many different dimensions and people from all those areas of her life wanted to own a little bit of the commemoration. And as kind of, you know, the guest of honour, the, you know, I was her executor and her next of kin, effectively. I just got invited to all of them. So mm. I probably did more of that than anyone else. <laughs> Let's have another poem then. Yeah, so this is further on in the grieving process. And we were talking about that dissonance, how, you know, sometimes with our friends we don't share everything or we have differences. Um, I loved Rosemary dearly. She was an academic and she was um, an educator to her bones. Um, I, I have also been involved in education, but sat much more likely to it than she did. And she always wanted to explain everything. And it meant you couldn't always just get through something without her telling you what it was all about. And I didn't always need to know. <laughs> um, so the poem is about that, but it's also about uh, another art form I love, which is um, painting. Um, and this is me in the Tate Gallery having um, having an experience. And when people die, we get these flashbacks, don't we, when things will suddenly think, oh, God, that person's gone. Mm. You'd be in a supermarket or something and it would just suddenly hit you. Mm. Um, so this is one of those moments. And the title is stolen from John Donne's poem, as I'm sure you'll recognise. A valediction proscribing mourning. Your friends tell me I must make space to grieve and offer up the jagged bits of their distress for my release. This jigsaw of pain and loss fails to reframe the image of your death. Those voices cannot pierce the numbness in me, now your voice has gone. Don't get me wrong, there were occasions when I craved silence in your company, wanted to watch a film or stand in front of a painting without your annotations and recitation of captions. Times I would have settled for in-the-moment blissful ignorance, my mossy imagination packing the gaps between the stones of information, but you needed to share your knowledge. Visiting the Tate, I witnessed Turner's, and as I stroll from one gallery to the next, I slip back into your sitting room and hear again the clamour of your interjection above the actor's dialogue giving chapter and verse of the romance between the painter and Sophia Booth, which I had just intuited. I would give good money now for the sketch of your life to be completed, to achieve more than these bold blobs of colour shouting fire through the mist, for your boat to be sailing into the blaze of a new dawn, not scuppered, scuttled, wrecked. Here in this gallery... I find a place to mourn, for you have passed into another room. My tears are damned and you are dumb. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Lovely poem. Yeah, so that's Hannah reading from The Invisible Worm. And it's, yeah, John Dunn wrote some wonderful stuff, didn't he, in terms of yeah. elegies. Elegies. Um, I mean, he was a very diverse poet because he wrote some of the best love poetry in the canon, but also he was Dean of St Paul's and wrote a lot of religious stuff. Um, He wrote lovely poems lamenting the death of his wife. Um, And, uh, yeah, we were thinking, weren't we, about all the the various ways that poetry Mm. memorialises. Yes, the idea of the threnody, the kind of lamentation song. And I was thinking, yes, I mean, obviously the In Memoriam by... Tennyson comes to mind, which I yes. love. It's fantastic. And it's, I refer to it in the in the book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Douglas Dunn's yeah. um, series of poems about his cycle of poems about about his wife, who also died of cancer, which are great. And you've mentioned Alice Oswald as well. Yes, she wrote an amazing book-length poem called Memoriam, which is, she describes it as an excavation of Homer's Iliad, and it's talking about all the all the young men who died in the Trojan War. And Homer's original is, you know, a lot of glorification and all sorts of things. But she's looking at those deaths and through a process of repetition and, um, yeah, iteration and exploration, she um, explores that. And she's done a really wonderful reading of it on a CD for those of us who still have CD players. Mm. Um, So, yeah. yeah. So did you, yeah, so did you have any of those, you on? You just you just went for it. You didn't have Tennyson <laughs> breathing on your shoulder. Um, I did not, though she loved Tennyson. And there yeah. is a, I have got a Tennyson poem in here, actually, um, which is actually a reference to his poem, Crossing the Bar, which yeah, was read at her funeral, but which I, I think I probably couldn't read to you without crying. Um, but uh, yeah. no, Tennyson wrote this incredibly long poem about the, the death of his, his friend. Um, I have no such ambitions, and also these days we don't have the time for 19th century poetry <laughs> well, uh, that extent. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, no, I think there is, I mean, when I was sequencing them, there is a chronology. It starts mm. with, um, it starts at the beginning of the process and goes on to the end, really. Um, mm. And I, I kept sort of moving them around and, you know, they're not necessarily in the strict chron- chronological sequence, but they do follow... Um, the the mm. process that we were going through together. Um, she became ill. Well, I took her to clinic in about May or June. She went into hospital in July, was due to have surgery, couldn't because she was too far advanced, was given a year to live um, in August and died a month later. Gosh, it was that quick. quick. So it was four months, really, from start to finish. And that in itself was just a shockingly short amount of time to adjust to... Yeah. all the changes that were happening and all the things that were going on. Well, we'll hear another poem from the collection in a minute. But first of all, just tell us about your your musical life in terms of... Yeah, because you've written the... Well, I, do you write yes. a book of lyrics for oratorios? Uh, <laughs> I've written two opera libretti, which are... Um, I collaborate with a composer. And the big piece of work we did, which was performed um, last year by the choir, one of the choirs I sing in, the choir we both sing in, St Peter's Singers, was a requiem, and that's a full-length piece of work that we did on Good Friday last year. Mm. But I have written for him, and he's yet to set any of it, two opera libretti, and uh, probably eight or nine little songs. Um, 
I am a singer. I sing with regularly with three choirs and I, as they call it, dep at the Minster, which means when they're short of a soprano to sing a service, I get a call from the from the conductor and I rock up and just do the service or, you know, a funeral or a wedding or whatever needs to be done. So I suppose four choirs is quite a lot, really. Absolutely. <laughs> it's almost a festival. There's <laughs> three choirs. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> um, but yes, and also you're involved with the Leeds Leader Festival. I am, yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, I convene the Poets Composers Forum for the Leeds Leader Festival where um, I find uh, an equivalent number of poets to collaborate with a number of conductors, uh, composers. This time we have 10. Last year it was 12. And we put them in a room for a mad speed dating event. Um, and then they go off and, and produce this little um, mm. little baby, uh, which is a three-minute song for voice and piano, which will be performed, uh, we've got the dates in April, um, and workshopped. Um, and what's really exciting in the last few years is that we're doing this as a, as a Leeds songbook. So all the songs are about people from Leeds, and we're trying to bring the concept of leader, which is a fairly esoteric um, art form of sort of <clears throat> 19th century romantic song to a broader audience and to make it more accessible, a bit like what you're doing at Chapel FM, really. It's a com- you know, taking it into yeah. the community. Um, and I, I'm not doing that because I'm a singer, but I think it helps that I'm doing that with the knowledge of, of how singers work. And this year I am actually one of the collaborators as well. Yes, yeah, so I suppose I do do quite a lot of music, really, as well as poetry. I think of you in terms of those terms. So, um, yeah, so finally, before we have the last poem, I I was going to ask you, which sounds like a very crass question, really, but in terms of the writing of this series of poems, which is about your friend and about the death of your friend, has it, has it, what's been the effect on you? Has it, has it? sort of been a kind of catharsis have you worked through anything is, is anything has anything is the pain diminished through writing is what i suppose i want to ask i think the process of writing it was indeed cathartic and i think catharsis is defined as the purging of pity and fear isn't it it's a it's from classical greek drama and the idea that when you externalize something on stage you kind of get it out of you and mm. it's then out there um, I think as a poet, I tend, that's what I tend to do. I, I use it for processing emotion, although by no means all my poetry is personal. I write quite a lot of um, satirical, political prose poems and all sorts. I write about all sorts of stuff. And I'm not a great fan of the purely confessional poem where it's just me, me, me. There isn't a lot of first person in this collection. There's some, but not a lot, because I wanted it to have that universality. Um, I think... I think I feel it's honoured, Rosemary, and I think turning it into a book, having it published and now reading from it, people buying it, because, to be honest, we do want people to buy it. Mm. I also asked my um, lovely friend, Oz Hardwick, who's a very talented artist as well as poet, to produce the book cover for me, which he did from a piece of embroidery I'd done. Um, So I commissioned him to do that. Um, Mm. And that was part of bringing Rosemary home to Leeds Trinity. I'm also delighted that it's published by Wordspace, which is an imprint I set up for Leeds Trinity as part of my MA. So it wasn't just the writing, the poetry, it was making it into a book that is, and it's published by um, Indigo Dreams, who published the collaboration that Rosemary and I did four years ago. So Mm, it's sort of a holistic thing. And I think all of that um, has helped 
process the emotion, I think, and the time it takes for all of that to happen. Mm. Just I don't wouldn't say time is a great deal. I would say love can heal, to quote Peter Gabriel. Mm. But just the amount of time it took to do all of that, I'm now looking back and thinking, oh, yes, that doesn't smart as much as it did at the time. Well, yeah. yes, you've made a lovely thing from it. And, uh, Thank that's you. Got- that's all we can do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Try and make something, <laughs> make some, something, something of some it. beauty yeah. out of the pain. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do we get hold of it before we have the last poem? Uh, you can find me on Facebook and message me. I'm Hannah Stone and there's a rather unconvincing looking picture of me in a very frothy pink bolero. <laughs> So <laughs> um, reading from a collection I did with Pam Scobie called Fit to Bust, which is all about women's underwear and breasts and things. So a completely different theme. Um, very raunchy. Um, or you can email me on hannahstone14 at hotmail.co.uk and I will tell you how to get, um, get a copy and you can pay me via PayPal. So, yeah. Or you can ask Peter if you forget and get in touch with Chapel FM yes, and they can, can find out the details. Absolutely. It's in the book. We've got a copy of it in the library here. Um, and uh, so you get all the details from it in, in, in the, in the, inside the front cover. Yeah. But uh, thank you for donating it to us. You're welcome. So let's hear a final poem before we have the final piece of music, which you can also introduce. In this process, I was greatly supported by another former colleague, Joyce, who was my fellow executor, and she and I went down to the Gower, uh, where Rosemary wanted some of her ashes to be scattered. Um, I was really unwell at the time with long COVID, needing lots of rest. And this is why we stayed overnight on the way at Hay on Y. And I woke up early, as I often do, and it was a glorious midsummer morning. And I went out for a walk by the riverside and heard this little wren singing its heart out. Um, my friend Rosemary was very small, very short, with a very loud voice. <laughs> um, so I think this poem will make a bit of sense. So the, it's just the date and the dedication is for Joyce. 21st of June, 2022, Hey on Why. Never did so small a bird sing with so loud a voice as this cocky wren shouting down the missile thrush, contradicting the ducks that skim the river. Beyond the bridge... The water breaks and remakes itself round islands, small plots of land that dream of more than waterfowl and willows. Today we too shall be broken and remade as we gather to scatter your ashes, your death the boulder in the living flow, forcing us to find new currents. This woodland riverside walk is blessed with birdsong and every green smell of a June morning, where water, air and light perform their diurnal task of beauty, an icon a chiropoeta, not made with hands. And in restoring you to the earth, we write anew that promise to be held in love's embrace. Thank you, Anna. Yes, and... Let's have the final piece of music, which is by Don MacDonald. Yeah, I came across this recently on Radio 3's Breakfast Show. I hadn't heard it before, but I absolutely love it. It's got the same sort of scrunchy tonality of Eric Whitaker and Lauridson and those sort of American composers. He's a Canadian. Um, and I chose a recording of it, which he did himself as in a multi-tracking, singing tenor and bass. <laughs> so a little technicality, but as a singer, that, that appealed to me. And it's called When the Earth Stands Still. Come in the silence of the moment before rain comes down. 
Stay. 